There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk The Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter. So the NHS does a wonderful job and I'm not getting at it, but I'm getting at politicians who say we know best. And Lord Willie Hockey. When we talk about this fantastic, wonderful NHS, we can only use that phrase now we're actually talking about the people who work in the NHS. Yes. The system in the NHS is broken. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Well, good morning, Willie. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm fine, I'm fine. You're in fine fettle. So, we're in the middle of the World Cup, Willie. Football's on everybody's mind. Maybe not Scottish minds, but um, England look a tasty side. What do you think? Are they going to go all the way? Oh, no, I wouldn't think so. No, no you can look tasty against the clubs <laughs> that they've been playing against, but they're 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 um, blowing very much hot and cold. Right, But okay. no, I don't think England will win the World Cup. So, the Go Radio Business Show... And this morning, I want to talk about the business of football. Oh, dear. Because that's something you know about. So, Man United up for sale, six billion. Liverpool up for sale, four billion. Paris Saint-Germain up for sale, who knows. Now, these are owned, Man U, by Americans. Liverpool by Americans. And PSG with Qataris. And they have invested in football to make money, I would say. Because it used to be, if you would invest in football, it was for the love of the game, to take care of the supporters. But these are hard-nosed businessmen who want a return. And I was taken by an article in this week's Times by a guy called um, Michael Moritz. For the listeners who don't know Michael, Michael was born in South Wales, same place as my mum, my dear old mum. And Michael um, joined a company in Silicon Valley called Sequoia Capital. And Michael was the man who spotted early, Willie, Google, Yahoo, Skyscanner, PayPal, YouTube, you name it, Michael saw it. It made himself a billionaire. But what I love about Michael, and I've had the pleasure of meeting him through the Giving Pledge, is he does put his money back in. He's given over 100 million to Oxford University and he is an all-round good guy. So when he speaks, I listen. And he is a Man U supporter. And he said, how much is Man United worth? Maybe 10 times EBITDA, which would put it in about 800 million. But the owners think it's worth 6 billion. So, Willie... The business of football, is it a good business? Is it a bad business? They used to say that if you wanted to get involved in aviation and you wanted to be a, a millionaire, start off as a billionaire. <laughs> and football is very much like that. So all of the guys that you mentioned, and, and I've been very, very fortunate, I've not met Michael, but I've spoken to him. He's, he's a great friend of a good friend of mine, Sir Alex Ferguson. He is indeed. And uh, I had a wee bit of a part to play when I was 
you know, chatting with Fergie about doing a book about the business of football, which he'd done with Michael a few years ago, in which they actually teach at Harvard now. And Fe you know, Fergie's a visiting professor there. So um, how would I sum up my involvement in football from a business sense? Yes. Right. Is it a business, Willie? Because, no, because it's the these... worst business in the world. Well... I would argue with you yeah. that the Glazers who own Man United are going to make a phenomenal return. Well, if you let me finish, it's I, a, it's, I've it's, started it's so not, finish. It's not a good business in relation to an annual return on your investment, your old ROI. But where the Americans and maybe the Southern Wealth Funds have been clever is that they see a capital receipt as a return. So you're right. Where the Glaziers, whether we like or not, they used the whole power of Man United to buy Man United, right? They indebted the club, I think, to the tune of about £500 million. So they put very little in. And I think I'm right in saying they've actually had more out in dividends than they actually put in. So they are free. So that's good business, so it's 100%. They're free rolling. They're free rolling. My worry is, is that... All of the people you mentioned, the, you know, the, the sovereign wealth funds, the, the big PE companies, the big amount, right? I just wonder where football's going to end when they all get fed up with their toys, right? And there is only so many clubs. And I think, to be fair, I think that Tom Bewley, who bought Chelsea, has set all these hairs running because there's no doubt they paid way over the odds for what Chelsea's actually so? worth. Yeah. Well, when you use the business term, what's the multiple? Right, yeah. so if, if I said to you just now, and this is a fact, Tom, right, if I was to say to you, tell me the, mo the 10 most successful football clubs in the world, you'd start to rhyme off all the clubs who have been successful, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Man United, Chelsea, blah, 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 all these clubs. So that's successful on the Pitch. playing field, yes. Willie. Not yes. successful no. because you've told me this, so tell the listeners this morning. Right. So if I was to put a chart up of the 10 most successful clubs in relation to silverware, I can guarantee you none of them would be, or they would be on the worst list in relation to a business investment. So the clubs at the moment, if I was to show you 10 of the most successful football businesses in the world, You'd be you'd be intrigued to know that the first club there would be Ajax, you know, three hundred eight, maybe must be near five hundred million net profit over the last ten years on uh -huh. average. Uh, you've got AZ Altmar from a standing start two thousand and two to two thousand and twenty, where they took a club from nowhere, provincial club, made it into a club, all based on this model: players, player transfers, player sales. AZ Altman are looking at maybe making 340 million. Wow. So 32 million on average over the last 10 years. Then you get surprises like Partizan Belgrade, uh -huh. right? All so right. you wouldn't think that they'd be up there, but what they've done is they, they put a lot of stock into their academy, spent a lot of money, and they're just a factory for churning out players and to make money. So do not be surprised, the listeners, people out there in business, you would get a shock if you were trying to find out where the best 10 football clubs are in recent success and in businesses. So the way that Chelsea was going was not sustainable. Right. Right. And that's the big, big worry. You know, we've had it in Scotland over the years, you know, over the last 30 years, you've had most of our big clubs, unfortunately, getting into trouble. You know, way back in the days, early 90s, when I involved myself with Celtic, you know, would they, would they take over then with Fergus McCann? Now, Willie, I would 
I would say that you did not invest in Celtic for a financial return, did you? No, I did not. No, no I did not. <laughs> uh, people ask me, the reason why I got involved with Celtic at the time was because they were in trouble. Um, but what I need to say for the people that are, Celtic were never going bust. Right. right. So that's right. And this is a fact, right? At the time when Fergus took over the club, Gerald Weiswald had already put £3 million into the Bank of Scotland, you know, and so nothing was ever going to happen. Celtic were never going to go bust, never in the Mother Sundays. There was, I don't want to say there was people queuing up, but there was two different factions there with the cash, with the money in the bank to take over. But I think it, it was, it's, you know, going back and talking about those times, um, it was great then to get invited by Fergus to get involved in, in the club, but... But you did it for the love of the club. I done it because the, the the club was in trouble. And there is no doubt, and it should just shows because I don't know much about football, but I'm intrigued by the business of football because the numbers yeah. are mind blowing. Yeah. That the English Premier League, probably the best in the world. Yeah. Would Would you say absolutely, absolutely, no doubt. So the American owners of Man U, the Glazers, are going to make a good return. Yeah. The Liverpool owners good return whether the Qataris make a good return at PSG still to be seen Man City's Abu Dhabi Newcastle's gone to the Saudis yeah. so maybe these sovereign wealth funds are investing for a different reason to the Glazers maybe they're looking to promote their country the Qataris have got the World Cup I think we call it sports washing is that what it's called <laughs> yes, but the Gulf and I've, I've read in the Herald this week the Herald's doing a big um feature on Scottish football yeah. but the gulf between Scottish football and English Premier League is colossal but I did read this week that Rangers have had a much better season they're producing a turnover of about 87 million and they're making a profit of about 6 million which has been a turnaround I'm sure Celtic's doing okay as well but is it simply the TV rights that are the differentiator Willie? 100%. It? It's, it's right. Sky has made the Premier League what it is with the money that it's they have pumped as in that. there. And it's, I don't know if you remember back in the day, Tom, but when, when Rupert Murdoch set up Sky, initially he, he bet all in on films and content. He spent a fortune and he thought that this was the thing that would make people pay to view and he found out very quickly that sport was way ahead of and film. Did, did he not try and buy yeah. Man U at the time? Yeah, well, there was all sorts of talk Aye. at the time. But, but you know, when you talk about football, can you imagine, we mentioned about Fergie earlier, imagine back in the day when Knighton, Michael Knighton was trying to buy Man U. Man U could have been bought for £10 million. My goodness. £10 million. Right, today we're talking about, you know, between 6 and £9 billion, right? Not if you agree with Michael Morris. Uh, exactly, and, and I don't, but somebody will, will pay a premium. But but the articles that the Herald have ran this week have been brilliant, you know, the finance and football. Right. And and I think it's fair to say, and, and I mentioned that, as, as, a, as a Celtic fan, right, and you look, you turn up and watch your club winning and you see, but but because of the scare of the early 90s with the club, we know was in a perilous position, I think it's fair to say, no matter what, what we think, that the job done by the majority shareholders since then, so since Dermot took over in, in 99 and Peter, that is a blueprint for how you should run a club, right? It's how you should run a business, a football club. And I know people might not be happy, you know, we didn't do 10 in a row, so we should throw a lot more money on some of the things I might not have been happy about. But overall, over that period, the stewardship of the club since it was taken over, if you just look at your, your rivals, 
and look what's happened in that period over 25 years, you'd need to think you were ahead of the game. I right. can't get into Rangers v right. Celtic like that's right. beyond my pay scale. But, but Tom, I remember the day when people were trying to get you in an arm lock, you know, and try to get you involved in football. Yeah, thank goodness right. I didn't, Willie. Right. Well, you actually did. So you should tell the viewers about how you tried to take a small club into the Champions League. Ah, uh, <laughs> well, my when, whenever, whenever it's a very dodgy question in Scotland. What team do you support? And I, I don't really support any team. So I always used to say Glenafton Athletic yeah. from Newcomnock, and. Um, we actually got the Glens to the Scottish Junior Cup final a couple of years with Ruffy, good old Alan Ruff as the manager. Yeah. And it was brilliant, but that was my only foray into football, Willie. Can I, can I just say, you going back to the football, and, and the dilemma for Celtic and Rangers, and the fans don't like this, right? But because of the finances in football today, the, the only way that Celtic and Rangers can show a positive P&L at the end of the year whether the fans like it or not, is either by getting to the Champions League group stages or by gains on selling of players. Right. So Celtic and Rangers now will always be selling clubs, right, if you get the right offers in for players now. And it's the only way, actually, that you can balance the books. You know, so they've got the, you've got the, you know, that certain cash flow of your 55, 60,000 season ticket holders, and that's great. But the money that it costs you today to to you know to perform at all at any level, and the gulf the gulf now between the smaller clubs and the bigger clubs is absolutely huge. Huge. It does it does seem to me that success is a very different thing for the financial backers as it is for the fan. Yeah. The fan doesn't really care if there's EBITDA. They want to know if they've got a cup, if they've got a championship, and the financial backer wants to return their money. So um, is football a business? I would say it is for a lucky few, but for most people, they'll get involved. The love of the team, the love of the club. You know, I don't know where we end up. So so let me say, just to finish on this, right, this is interesting. This was a great point that my son pointed out to me, right? At the time of the talk last year of the European Super League, Right, it was all the biggest clubs in the world, right, who were trying to you know get involved in this, and they got some stick, and it fell apart. Right, right. the reason why that they had to do this, and Juventus was at the forefront of this, right, is because they needed the money. It wasn't through choice, right. Every one of the clubs we've just mentioned, you know. Chelsea, over a billion is a deficit, right? Debt, uh, Real Madrid, 1.1, Barcelona, 1.2, right? All of us know Barcelona not paying people's, people's wages. But here's an interesting point my son made, and then just to tell you how to prove how right he was. He said that it would, these clubs are all financially ruined because the way they've been run, because the way the clubs have been managed, right? If you gave all, if, if if creating a European Super League meant you got another 300 or 400 million more, right? The people running these clubs would have just been 300 or 4 million more reckless. <laughs> it wouldn't have helped them in one bit because it was bad. And here's what's happened this week that proves he was so right. Uh -huh. And I don't know how embarrassing this must be for the Agnelli family, right? The Agnelli family... And, 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 and well, I just... Just for the listener this morning, who are the right. The Agnelli family are the people who own Juventus, right? And, and have owned it for 70-odd years, straight, f f maybe from the inset, their grandfather. And their background, they own Ferrari, they own Fiat. Fiat they are huge. The, they're the godfather of huge, Italy. Huge, right? This week, 
the whole board, including the head of the Agnelli family, have had to resign wow. from Juventus. The whole board. Why, Willie? I've had to resign because there is a financial irregularity report being put to the prosecutor fiscal oh, in goodness. Italy, right, about against fair play financially. Really? So watch that. So I would say we can't prejudge that, but this just proves the point of what my son was saying, that what happens in the moment is you've got a few people who don't understand finance, yeah. right, um, running big, big clubs, and it doesn't get any better by throwing more money at them and just be more reckless. What I would say to finish this is, is that I think in Scotland, getting back to Scotland, I think actually the Scottish football and the ownership of a lot of the clubs is probably more stable than it's been for maybe two or three decades, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of stability. There's a few owners, American owners, you know, um, Canadian owners, there's people here. But there seems to be a lot of common sense has broke out within the Scottish game. So hopefully most people... The problem what happened in Scottish football is everybody tried to keep up with Celtic and Rangers. Right. And that was a crazy thing to do. Right, the way that you know Celtic Rangers shouldn't try and keep up with Newcastle now or Chelsea. Right, you've got to find a level and try and do the best that you can with, with, with the money you've got. But I think that for us, and, and, and it's great that you know, the articles the Herald done this week and continuing. I think um, I think Scottish football's in, in, in good fail. So maybe we'll get one of my business partners, Jim McMahon, on because he's chairman of, of yes. Motherwell, which has got a different ownership structure. And I know Jim's just, you know, he does a good job at Motherwell and maybe he's right. got a different point of view. Right, let's have a football week. <laughs> Changing subjects, Tom, for football, right, which I wouldn't normally do, but someone we've been talking about over the last few weeks, Elon Musk. Oh, I hate it when you're right, Willie. Right, <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it this week when, when it looks like he may be right in trouble in relation to his purchase of Twitter. The European Union have already threatened him and Janet Yellen from the US Chamber has said this week, yes, and we are discussing it and we are ready to have him in any day to discuss what he thinks he can do with Twitter. Well, it's funny you should say so, Willie, because one of the advisors to the Hunter Foundation used to work directly for Elon, and <laughs> this shows you how crazy it was. His weekly catch-up with Elon was at 4am on a Wednesday. <laughs> wow. And... He said to us at the last Foundation board meeting, the thing that will unravel um, Twitter is that Elon sacked everybody in the compliance department. He just doesn't like that. And the regulators will get him. And there you go. It's come true. I said in the programme a few months ago that um, I believe that what's behind Elon wanting to buy Twitter is he wants to control Right, what everyone's talking about in the world. And I said it was part of a, a ploy for him to become president of America. Wow. Right, so right away I got emails and texts for everybody saying, what are you talking about, you numpty, he's South African. <laughs> and I had to reply saying, do you think that he thinks that that will stop him? <laughs> so I still think he's a genius. But anyway, moving on. Right. Some good news, Wally. We're always looking for good news in this show. So... As you know, we're, we're both investors in hospitality. I have the great pleasure of investing in Buzzworks, brilliant family business. We were talking this week at the board meeting um, about a company called Loungers, which were, was founded down in England in 2002. It's growing. It's now operating 210 venues, none in Scotland, Willie, and it floated in um, 2019 
And in their half-year numbers, their revenue was up 53.2%. Their like-for-like, which is a kind of industry-standard KPI, yep. um, 17%. Earnings were down a bit because last year they had VAT reduced, rates relief, um, they'd furlough, eat out to help out and all this. But it just struck me sitting there at the Buzzworks um, board meeting there's a lot of moaning about in hospitality, but at the Buzzworks board meeting, they put the challenges forward and then they came forward with solutions and they are still opening outlets. So my point here is that even in these difficult times, good entrepreneurs still see opportunities. Of course, there's challenges, but they find a way around about it and they build brilliant businesses. And this is always what happens in adversity, right? The cream will come to the top. So people who are striving, working, that's not by coincidence. The people there, the two brothers who are running up, have got their ear to the ground on every single thing that's working. And not just in Scotland. No, they're looking across the globe to see what people are doing. And as you say, good entrepreneurs will find a way in, in hard times to actually grow their businesses. And I need to talk about Alison because she's the sister in the family business as well, Willie. <laughs> well, you're closer to them than me. Alison's probably the main brains in the business and I don't even know her. <laughs> Coming next, Hunter and Hockey chat to Bob Keeler of AB15 Limited. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions, part of the Scottish Procurement Framework for Managed Print Solutions, available to all public sector bodies and charities. Go there are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. The special guest this week is Bob Keeler of AB15 Limited. Bob completed the one billion sale of PSN to Wood Group in April 2011. He was responsible for the creation of PSN by manufacturing a $280 million management buyout from Halliburton in 2006. Bob, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show this morning. It's great to be here, Willie, thank you. Bob, you're the first person on the show who's actually made me money because we backed you in 2006 buying PSN out and you did a brilliant job. So thank you, but I'm still waiting to lunch you on me. Tom, it's coming soon. Don't worry, don't worry, it's coming soon. <laughs> so now I know why it was Tom's idea to invite you on. So that was it. I knew there'd be exactly. money behind it somewhere. I just wanted a lunch, Willie. Bob, tell us a wee bit about yourself. Okay, for those that don't know me, I was brought up in the borders, uh, brought up in a council house. Father was a labourer, mother was a school teacher. I uh, went to local school, and then after I went to local school, I called it college because it was actually university, but I thought I was going to up myself by calling it university, so I went to I went to Harriet Watt College. Um, I wanted to pay... <laughs> most, most people go the other way. No, <laughs> you're a contrarian. Yeah, I kinda, I kinda, my, my ambition was to paint album covers for heavy metal bands but <laughs> the CDs arrived in the early 80s and things like that and I realised you have to be pretty lucky and talented that so I did engineering as a fallback so I went the engineering route uh, and then I realised mm, 
you've got to be keen on engineering to do engineering. And I was more keen on things like projects and people and business. So I was working for, for Hewlett Packard uh, in electronics and that. And I was, I thought, this is not for me. So I jumped sideways and went and joined the oil and gas industry, which meant I spent some time offshore, onshore, big companies, small companies, operating companies, service companies, uh, and spent a lot of time doing different things and learning lots of different things on the way. And then ultimately um, got a chance to take on board increased management responsibility. I found myself in charge of a business with about 6,000 people in it. Um, and the opportunity came along and I thought, the owners of this business don't really appreciate it because it's quite different from the other parts of the business. I wonder if they'll sell it. So I thought, right, I'll go and ask them. And I, I, I flew across to Houston to meet the chief financial officer of the, the Halliburton Corporation. And I thought, I could get fired. And, and, I could and, get fired for Bob, this. Just just give the listeners a view in Halliburton. It was a big business. Multi-billion dollar business. But, and here's the crux of it, is that they were planning to spin off half their business, which was their engineering division called KBR at the time. So... The story I came up with was you'll need a lot of money to do that. At the moment, you've got a couple of projects in Brazil that are not going well, so you've, you've not got a lot of cash on the table, so you're going to have to go and raise money to do that. If you sell me this little bit of the business, the proceeds of that business will fund your big deal. So that was the kind of putting the bits of the puzzle together. Uh, and as I say, I thought I might get fired for having the kind of temerity to go and ask this. But I said, no, um, go and... Tell us how you're going to fund it. Right. I said, right, I will. I had no clue. No clue. <laughs> so the good thing about Scotland being a relatively small business community, there's plenty of people you can ask. So I came back and I asked. And I started asking about people. We started thinking about how we're going to raise the money. And uh, we went forward. And we thought, right, we're going to have to explain what this business opportunity is to people that don't know the business, don't know me, don't know the sector. So I, I told them a story about uh, uh, the opportunity to take a small Scots pine from the middle of a forest of giant redwood trees and let it grow in some space. <laughs> and that's how I first got I some never, of the guys. I never heard that story. You know? And then when we went to uh, ref, you know, refund the finance, um, distribute it, I told the same story to 100 people, 120 people down in Bishopsgate in London, and they're all sitting with their eyes closed, imagining themselves walking through a forest of giant redwood trees. And I'm thinking, oh, I, I hope they get this. I hope they get this. So but it was did. Bank of Scotland, it was Peter Cummings. Peter and his team, And yeah. we had the honour of being a small part West Coast Capital in your buyout and that's how I first met you and it was brilliant. Yeah. brilliant. Well, people that were involved in it look back through kind of rose-tinted glasses and think, oh, everything was great from oh, day one. Oh, it was the all great. It was panic. <laughs> we had six months to get off Halliburton systems. Right. So we had to put new systems in place for finance, for procurement, for HR, for everything. And when we went to the people that sell these systems, and I said, you can't do it in six months. It's impossible. Right. So we had to do it in six months. So what size in pound terms is this business you're buying? So this, I borrowed $305 million, right. of which 280 was the, the price for the business. Yeah. Now, 280 represented about five times the profit of the business at the time. But of that, you know, all of it was debt, really. There was a little slither that was equity. So the equity at that stage was worth less than nothing. Um, and, <laughs> That's not what Peter Cummins told me, Willie. <laughs> and therefore, what we had to do going forward was we had to obviously generate enough business to give ourselves the headroom so that actually the value of the business was bigger than the cost of the debt and the equity so that the value of the equity would begin to increase over time. 
I also raised another 100 million on top of that to go and buy four bolt-on businesses, but then the kind of credit crunch came along. It did. And things got a bit tough and a bit <laughs> difficult. And so we battened down the hatches. We we didn't spend 100 million. We actually only spent two, uh, uh, two businesses, so we spent about 54 million. Um, and then things got tough and contracts started getting tough. But we we doubled down on sales. We doubled down on the stories we were telling and getting our customers and attracting new talent and kept growing the business and growing the business. And instead of exiting in a three to five year window, we exited at the end of the five year window. So at the end of the five year window, we were able to sell the business for a billion dollars, which meant that people like Tom could go and buy another five houses in Ayrshire. Ah, it was great. Yeah, was things great. like that. Um, and, and, and all the investors did well out of it. And uh, we sold it for 10 times the profits at the time. So we kind of doubled the size of the business and the value of the business as we went. So, so Bob, just for the listeners this morning, I think that's a great learning point, is that you saw the opportunity, but you had no idea how to actually execute it. Correct. And a lot of people this morning be going, right, goodness, where do you find that confidence how do you build that team? How do you get the talent to do that? And the one true thing I know about you is you're the best business leader I've ever come across and you get the talent. But maybe just for the listener this morning, they probably don't believe that you didn't know how to do it. Yeah. But I know it's true. No, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's true. It is true. I remember Alistair Gardner from uh, Bank of Scotland was standing with a flip chart and, and it's like that scene from Father Ted <laughs> where he's explaining to Dougal the principle of perspective and he's saying, no, Dougal, this is a small cow, that's a faraway cow. <laughs> and that's what it was like. I'm saying, what do you mean by mezzanine finance? What is it? What do you mean by leverage? What is leverage? In my word, the levers are something that you put under a stone to get something at the garden. I said, so what do you mean by that? So I was picking apart all the different things until I got it down in my engineering terms. All oh, right. Ah, oh, right. So you're borrowing that money and that money's at risk and that money's not at risk. And they cut and I, all right, I've kind of got it sorted out now. But it was the language was completely opaque to me at the time. And, and You're a quick learner, Bob. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but again, we should make the point, we've made this point in months gone by. This was a golden era of entrepreneurship in Scotland that could not have happened if it wasn't for Peter, like Peter Cummins Peter and Cummings, Willie Watt. Yeah. You know, this was a time when entrepreneurs could get backed by people, you know, that you could walk into a room, you're talking 300. Nobody had done that in Scotland before. No. Nobody no. had the cojones. I mean, nobody would do that. I mean, and to be fair, I mean, I mentioned that I'd spent 20 years before that kind of learning my trade. Yes. By going to all those different companies and things like that. So a lot of that was, um, you know, I say it took me 20 years to become an overnight success. Yes. Um, so had had a lot of experience by that time, had run the business that I was buying for a couple of years by that time, as well as run the UK part of that business before that. So I had a lot of people with me already. I had a lot of customers with me already. And I had a lot of potential people wanting to come and work because we created a great culture in the business, which was the way in which you attract people into the business, even if you can't pay them any more than your competitors. You know? So this is always a question I like to ask people that have done a big sale. How many times did you think as you're getting towards the end that the deal was falling apart? <laughs> I'll tell you what's interesting about it. it, it I remember it, this, Willie. Really. <laughs> if, if we think about the deal on the way in, we had to get that over the line before Halliburton started the process of separating KBR. And they said, we're going to start that on the 1st of May 2006. And we said, oh, we've got plenty of time. Plenty of time. 
because we started this in the middle of 2005. We finished at 10 to midnight on <laughs> April the 30th in 2006. And all the lawyers said, we knew this would happen. And it's the first time I'd been through a process like that. So I didn't know this was going to happen. And it was just, it frightened the life out of me. Then when it came to the next part of the process, what was really interesting in this is about a year and a half into the process, I got approached by a guy called John Grill, who's the CEO of Worley Parsons based in Australia. And I met him for a coffee in a hotel in London. And he said, right, I'm just going to cut to the chase, Bob. I want to give you something like, I don't know, what's it, 450 million pounds for your business. But because I'd had a conversation with my colleagues, we knew where the red line and the green line was. We said, anything below the red line, we're just, well, it's too early, we're not interested. Anything with the green line, we'll bite their hand off. And there was a bit of gap between the two. This was below the red line. So I was able to say, I, at that point, I says, John, I says, look, I, I don't want to be disrespectful. Um, I really appreciate the offer. I think actually, given where we are today, that's a fair offer for the business, but it's too early on the journey. We're on an escalator. I want to be further up the escalator before I take your offer. So I pushed the coffee cup back at the middle of the table and walked out <laughs> of the hotel. So the next time I met him was in Sydney in Australia. And he said, this is about a year later. He says, right, I'm going to make you another offer. He says, but I want you to drink your coffee first. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to make sure you finish the coffee first. At least stay. So John was uh, uh, really interested in that business all the way through. Uh, and then, of course, um, I got approached by Alistair at, at Wood Group. And he said, uh, we've been looking at your success rate. And we need some of this and we'd like to think about it. And I said, well, and I, I said, I can't say anything. He says, oh, my goodness, you're already talking to somebody. I says, I can't say anything. He said, oh, you've signed an NDA. I can't say anything, Alistair. I can't say anything. And he says, we will have to move really quickly. I said, I guess I would if I was in your shoes. <laughs> so we, we created a, a little bit of competition and that little bit of competition ended up with, 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 with two, at least two players wanting to bid against each other and a bunch of other players want, wanting to get into the party. But we said, look, we're not really interested in having a free-for-all here. We want to be able to tell our staff that if we sell this business, we're selling it into good hands that will respect the, the, the value of the business and the culture of the business. Uh, but in doing that, that that drove up the kind of the, the sale price of the business quite significantly. So, big question: When you sell a business, was there a tie-in for you? Did you have to stay with the business? How long was that? I shook hands. Yeah, really. I I think contractually I was tied in for about a year and a half, but I shook hands on five years. Aye, wow. Um, and it was Sir Ian Wood said to me, "Look, will you stay for five years and take over as CEO of the business that you you know the the combined business?" And. Uh, I shook hands on that and I stayed for five years in one week. <laughs> so I think I did the deal. You did? Yeah, and there was no contract there at all. Yeah. I could have walked away way yeah. before that. But I, I thought, no, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a word. I'll, I'll do that. And then at that point, I said, that's the point now. I can, I can stop doing that and I can go and help other people. And when you left, what did you do then? I spent some time uh, not jumping in at the first taxi on the rank. Yeah because I got lots of offers and lots of non-exec offers and things like that. But one of my colleagues, uh, sadly, has passed away now, Duncan Skinner. Duncan, uh, he'd left about a year before me, and he he found himself, he said yes to too many people. So he was busy, but he wasn't. He didn't feel as if he was doing the right things. So I spent a little bit of time. First thing I did is went and spent a month in Australia and New Zealand. My, my youngest son, Grant, was training to be a pilot at the time down in New Zealand, so my wife and I went down there and spent some time, and I've, I've got family in Australia, so... We did all that, clear the head, then came back. And then I just went and started talking to people and listening to people and talking and working out what's the best way that I can make a difference here? Who who do I like working with? 
what do I want to do? Uh, and I quickly came to the conclusion I didn't want to be on 10 different boards, going from board meeting to board meeting and reading papers and flying up and down to Heathrow and across to Houston all the time. And I thought, no, I don't want to be doing that. I want to be working with people at the front end. I want to be working with people that don't get the help or can't afford the help. So early stage entrepreneurs, charities, social enterprises. I thought these are the people that will uh, they'll be the most fun to work with. Uh, and they'll get the biggest benefit from any help or support I can give them. So that's kind of where I focus my efforts. And, yeah. and one of the one of the great things you do for us, Bob, is help us in Scale Up Scotland. Yes. And what I'm really taken with, with what you say there is, and we talk about it often in the show, is the key thing of a leader is the attraction and retention of talent. And I don't think MB does it better than you. Have you got any tips for the listener today because what's what's your secrets? Come I, on, I, spill the beans. I'll tell you, there, there's there's no real secret here, Tom. Is but I did I did realise that. So at one point I had sixty thousand people in my team. Wow. And I wanted to make it so every one of them felt they knew me. So I spent about a third of my time on communication. Really? Yeah. Wow. So working hard at communication, and I'll give you an example. I used to put a, a weekly message to the whole business for ten years. So over 500 messages. Wow. I put out, I did two town hall meetings a week, groups of people. I put out videos. I did telephone calls. And then it was the little touch points on top of that, the little stories that came out. So you meet somebody uh, and they'll say, oh, yeah. So I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. There's a guy called Tom Hip. I'd put in one of my weekly messages. It was my 28th wedding anniversary that week. And, and he pinged a note back saying, it's my 30th wedding anniversary. I'm like, oh, good chance here. So I phoned a little florist in Houston, near where he lived and got a bunch of flowers sent round for him and his wife. Nice touch. And of course, later on that day, I get a call from this guy, Tom, and I'd never met the guy. Um, he says, can I speak to Bob? I said, yeah, how can I help you? He says, Tom here. He says, yeah. He says, my wife just called me. He said, who's Bob from Aberdeen? And why is he sending us congratulations? And I thought, there you go. Oh, enjoy your anniversary. And he's, well, I'm damned. And you know he told. Yeah. In fact, he's probably yeah. sitting telling that story today. Aye. So all these little touch points help to kind of yeah. make people... So when I would go in an office that I'd never set foot in before, so for instance, Greenville in South Carolina, I got there and I said, Bob, you're back. And I said, I've never been here before. <laughs> they said, but we know you. And, you know, and tonight we've got a charity cook-off thing in the barbecue and we've already got your name on there and uh, we're looking forward to meeting that. Because they'd heard my voice, they'd see me on video, they get messages every week and the message I put out Whenever I got comments back, I responded to them. Right. So I created a dialogue with, with thousands of people to bring them closer in and make them feel valued and explain things about the business. Why are we doing this? Why are we not doing that? Why have we made that tough decision? Why have we shut that down? Why are we opening that up? Why is the logo that color? Why have we bought that business? So all the time explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it and then building it on these solid principles, the core values of the business. You're saying these are the principles we're building it on and that created a culture that people enjoyed working in and it attracted more people to come and work in it. So Tom's already said that you're one of the best, if not the best, business leaders he's ever dealt with. I bet you say that to every guest every week. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, no, no. <laughs> but I think that we look at some of the things you're doing just now and it's great. You know, you're giving your time back, you're helping the scale up, you're helping people advice. Um, Scotland needs people that you to still be at the helm. 
right? Is there, is there another challenge for Bob? If somebody come along tomorrow with the right thing or have you decided, no, I've done all that and I'm happy I'm doing my non-exec stuff or I'm happy doing my charity work? No, it would depend. Yeah. Or, or you ne never, never say never, never right. say never. If uh, uh, I've got no burning ambition to get back onto a corporate yeah. single <laughs> company yes. thing. So, so Tom, you can put your money away. Okay. You, you don't right. need to put that money on the table anymore. <laughs> but... But if there was something else there that I thought that it could make a difference yeah. and it would be something that would I could leverage on any anything right. I bring to the table, I would, I, would, I would never say never. I mean, part part of it, well, in the past, so for instance, I, I, I took over as chair of Scottish Enterprise so that I could see beyond the oil and gas industry and see what else was happening in Scotland because yeah. I, I didn't know a lot of other sectors. So I spent time doing that. And I enjoyed that, but again, it's a non-exec type role, so you're you're not really driving the business. You're there just helping the team to get on, you know. As as an ex chairman of Scottish Enterprise Glasgow, I'm I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> gobsmacked. You just saying you enjoyed it? No, no I, I did. Part of the problem I got though is I, I mean my my home is in Aberdeen. My yeah. my wife's parents are up there as well, and they're they're, they're getting old. So uh, in the meantime, I'm kind of I'm I'm going to be based in Aberdeen. Uh, and at that time, I was I was coming down to Central Belt maybe two, three days a week, and it was getting more and more. And eventually, it came to a point. I said, "Look, we, I'll do my stint, but I'm not going to sign up another stint on this because it's not fair on my wife. Because yeah. I'd spent years traveling around the world on business, Aye. and when I gave that up, part of the deal was I was going to spend more time at home of and course. get a better work-life balance. Yeah. But if there was something that came along that was that was able to achieve that balance and made a difference uh, and, and benefited people that need the help, then, uh, as I say, never say never, Willie. Are you still in Aberdeen? Still in Aberdeen. Just now, yeah. so, right. so, Bob, can I ask, you, ask Ian with this question, but are there still opportunities in the North Sea and what do you think about the transition? So this is not a political question. This is a business question. Yes to both. Okay. Yes to both. So what Ch do you think? Change always introduces opportunity. And when there are changes of players, there are changes of technology, there's opportunities there. There are hundreds of potential new startup opportunities in the, the renewable energy and the carbon capture and storage sectors and others. And some of these will end up being big companies. Many of them will fail. Of course. Uh, so there's opportunities all over the place. Uh, and, and I see quite a lot of them at the early stages. Uh -huh. uh, and some of them you think this will go nowhere and they surprise you. And others you're thinking, if that works, if that works, wow. I'll, I'll give you an ex a small example, for instance. I was listening to a company this week. And uh, when you look at batteries, the batteries are everywhere now, electric cars, whatever. Uh, and batteries have got a certain energy density. And, and back in about 1939, somebody invented a battery made from zinc and air. And it's got a higher energy density than any of the lithium batteries or nickel batteries or lead-acid batteries. But you couldn't make them rechargeable because if you tried to recharge them, they, they fouled up and really didn't work. There's a company in Perthshire that think they've cracked how to make zinc-air batteries rechargeable, which means in theory, you can get twice as much energy out of the volume for batteries, which means... I'm in, yeah, I'm in, Bob. No, it's, it's great. I mean, and I'm thinking, now, the way they presented it to us was less than compelling in many ways, but that, that <laughs> To be fair, be that's what most pitches look like, yeah. <laughs> that, that can be coached. But actually, if they've solved it, and I and, you know, I, I can't verify it, they said they solved it, but they've solved that. There's opportunities like that. There's opportunities about turning wastewater into green hydrogen. There's opportunities about extracting... 
uh, wave power effectively, because um, we've never done it yet anywhere in the world, really, that are all bubbling out there that are creating you know, fantastic opportunities for people to invest in Scotland. So on that, we have been saying for the last few weeks that one of the things that we think that Scotland could actually be pioneering at the forefront is in renewables, right? Yes. But there doesn't seem to be any joined up approach at the moment, no. right? I feel somebody like you, right, would be the You're ideal person. You're offering Bob a job here, will I? No, but I would tell you what, if the First Minister was here, I'd be telling her, if you want to get told the truth and what can be done and how we should do it and the time it will take, they couldn't do better than getting somebody like you involved. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating area because as Scotland, we've got no shortage of potential renewable yes. energy. We've got no shortage of imagination and engineering talent. Um, and, you, and we've got lots of advantages. But I would agree with you. At the moment, it does seem to be a little bit um, disjointed. Yes. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a kind of a coherent joined up. We should be making our own wind turbines in Scotland. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't be importing them from elsewhere. You, you will know what happens here. The company with the most money that can do the most lobbying end up helping create policy. Mm -hmm. And what we need is someone like you, people like us that know when something is real, then get behind something like You come and talk to me and Tom about this and it's something right away. He says, if the guys are right about the batteries, I'm in. Right, so right yeah, away, this yeah, is yeah. something that requires funding. So somebody like you that's connected to the, the, the business um, of, you know, everybody who's big business in Scotland, you know them, right? You know them, right? Yeah. People maybe don't know that list of the show, yeah. but what you could do is you're convincing because you've delivered, right? Not because you tell a good story, because all your stories are backed up. And I think that I'm serious about this, that at the moment I am really, really worried that people are saying things like heat pumps are the answer, like others, you know, that we're costing people fortunes here yep. going down the wrong alley. Yep. And I think somebody like yourself who sifted through everything and says, the lobby has said that, but we're telling you this, here's really what is, you know, what we can be achieved in Scotland. And I think that we could be at the forefront of getting to 100% renewable energy in Scotland before anybody in the world, if we the right people running that. No, I, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for that. Uh, and it's that ability to make it joined up yeah. and make it coherent. Yeah. Because at the moment, the different uh, the different groups that are involved have got their, quite rightly, have got their own agenda. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you look at energy storage as being the big issue, yeah. there's a hundred different technologies out there being energy storage. Only one or two of them will ever be um, economic enough to do on a commercial basis. Yes. And it might not be hydrogen. You know, yeah. at the moment, people are saying, it's yeah. industrial scale hydrogen. He's saying, how do you know? It's never been done. They're guessing. Yeah, they're they're guessing. Guessing. So there's, there's no facts but, behind yeah, how Exactly. So yeah. there, there, there's all sorts of things out there that potentially need to be yeah. kind of brought together under a policy rather than just wishing it all happen organically because because it, it hasn't so far and, and and bob and the issue of transition yes and again it's not pol political i'm yes. asking you a business question this transition would you agree that we must take care of the people who are in the industry and it's a it's a transition over a number of years or would you stop the licenses today I mean, stopping the licences today feels like that's a great decision, isn't it? But in reality, it doesn't stop people consuming hydrocarbons. Yeah. It's about the consumption of hydrocarbons more than it's the generation. If you're going to generate hydrocarbons, you might as well generate them in the most environmentally uh, beneficial way, which probably isn't 
importing them halfway around the world to Correct. bring them here. Correct. So the, to, to me, there's some environmental merit in continuing to develop the resource we've got whilst we develop an alternative in a sensible, measured fashion. I think this is a really good point because what, where people are missing the point, issuing licences doesn't mean to say we have to continue to buy the product. Yeah. In the meantime, while people are spending millions, we can be getting on with solar, we can be getting on with, you know, tidal, all of these things. So yep. it may be that we're still progressing here until we've actually got there. Whether people like it or not, we have to continue giving these licences, right? I, or we're going to have a problem. I, I think gas is the big issue. Yes. You know, we... we We've seen recently the fragility of the setup just now. We don't have anything like enough storage capacity yeah. and we're reliant too much on markets beyond our control. Yeah. Uh, and whether that's liquid petroleum gas coming in or it's interconnector gas from Norway or from Europe, etc., we have got gas resources in the UK that are underdeveloped. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't make sense not to develop them. And you're right. And, and on gas, everybody agrees. Right? So Ukraine has proved that to us that we don't want to be beholden. So why not just have a policy, right? Okay, no matter what we come up with as an alternative, we're going to phase out gas. There's a lot of local authorities now will not allow you to install gas in new homes. Mm. Right, so, so people have already started. So I think that the great thing about having you on this morning, I think we've found you a job. But, 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 you know, Wally <laughs> he wasn't Bomber, looking for one, Wally, but he's but, found one. But there is there is one, Wally, there. The problem is like 40% of our electricity at the moment gets generated by burning hydrocarbons. <laughs> yes, correct, and, and, correct. And, and, the, and there's the issue and the yeah. intermittency issue yeah. of, of wind power. Wind power, I'm a huge yeah. fan of, by the way. Yeah. And I know there's lots of people say, oh, it's not as economic as you think and the turbines are not recyclable and that. But at the end of the day, if we can tap into a resource there that is effectively yeah. doesn't cost you anything at the point of delivery, then that has to be a good idea. So, so Bob, let me ask you as well, yeah. because um, Willie and I talk about getting the facts, get people who know what they're talking about. So I'm delighted you're on this morning. So do you have the correct data about how much Scotland is actually producing for renewables? Is there a place the public can go for the real data? I don't have that, Tom. I no. don't have that at all. I mean, I, Is that I, not I, crazy? I, the problem is we feed it into this thing called a grid. Yes. Once it's in a grid, you don't know which electrons are going in and which are coming out. So right. if there was a separate grid, you could have said, OK, we can see what's going in and what's going out. Yeah. So it's not quite it, as but easy. it's a national grid and therefore you've got things coming in from multiple angles. So yeah. it's not quite as easy intellectually as right. you would think to okay. be able to say, well, yeah. there's the input, there's the output. But I would say on that, if Scottish Power can put up big advertising posters everywhere saying that every bit of energy that they supply in Scotland comes from renewables... If we can, if we can challenge that, and it's true, right? Which I'm, I don't know if it is or not, but if it, I mean, is, it must be right? true. Scottish right? power's saying it. Well. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, Tom, don't bank on it. No, I know, no. right? A lot I of people say Keith things on here. in their marketing. I think we can get Keith right? on here. Good marketing, Bob. <laughs> it's, marketing. it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you, right? guys. And, thank you. And it, we should have had you on a long time ago. Right, and no and doubt th we'll thanks have you for getting back. me the new job as well. Yeah, Wally. we'll be getting inundated it, yeah. now. Our inbox and emails will be overflowing this week now with young companies saying, "Could you get me Bob's number so I can have a wee chat?" Like, well, with, with Tom's money, yeah. and my, my and my <laughs> intellect and, and, yeah. and your business skills, Willie. Yeah. What, what could we achieve? <laughs> so, Bob, I just want to thank you, first of all, for the financial return. <laughs> thank you very much. But more importantly and seriously, thanks for giving back to Scottish entrepreneurs. You yeah. do a great job. It's unsung, 
but it's absolutely appreciated you, by me and everyone who knows you. Here, here. Good on you, son. Thank Cheers, you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming next on Hunter and Hockey, the boards you can't afford. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions, providing secure archive storage to your business. Go there are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk the board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. We've got a caller lined up this morning, Scott Dixon from Foxwater. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Morning, Scott. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. Yourself? Good, good. good damn brilliant, thanks. Do you want to tell us a wee bit about yourself and the company? Then, obviously, your question. Yeah, so the company's called Foxwater, uh, spelled P-H-O-X. We're about six years old. Uh, we design and manufacture water filters. Um, environmentally friendly water filters specifically. Um, we sell them mostly to people in England, the big cities down in down in England. Uh, but now we're thinking about a bit of a US expansion. Wow, right. So the question, um, what I'm thinking is, you know, we're going to need to take on some distributors uh, and some key manufacturers in the US. So over and above, like Googling people and just going there and sitting in front of them and having a meeting with them, how do you do proper due diligence or how do you properly vet these people right well I think this is a question for Willie because <sighs> I have never did this um, Scott so Willie over to you well obviously you got a bit of experience dealing especially in the States Scott um, yeah. what I would say to you first a question back to you is would you like to do this on a franchise basis or you want just third parties to buy it from you do you know what we do here is strictly direct to consumer so okay. you know 90% of our revenue is straight through our website that's ideal for us in the US as well, but I'm just, the, the retail opportunity there is just so big that I don't want to miss out on it. So we'll go there, we'll start off Amazon and we'll do our own website stuff, our own uh, DTC market and stuff, but I really think there's a massive opportunity with retail. Yeah, and, and I think you're, you're right about that, but I think it's obviously proven that people like the product first. It'd be very difficult. I mean, I know, I know the process, obviously, you know that we deal with some of the largest retailers in the world, yeah. and I know how difficult it is to get a new product. And in the States, so I would say either, you know, starting off by maybe getting a small distribution or something, you know, dealing direct, B2B with someone there, getting a, getting a brand awareness. But you're right, the, the quick route to market is obviously dealing with some of the big guys. You know, if, yeah. you, if you can go and convince Walmart or Royal Ahold or, or Southeastern Grocers at one go, then you know you're in thousands and thousands of um, you know stores overnight. But but that yeah. itself brings a lot of challenges. Yeah, right? you know that you walk in and sell them a story, and they be one you distribute and supply them with millions tomorrow. Yeah. Right, and it brings. So I think that my experience, and I even done this in the states, that I went in and it was like when I had an opportunity of doing looking after a large estate. I convinced them to give me a small bite-sized chunk to prove and for me to learn about the states, to learn about them, to learn about mm -hmm. a partnership before I went for, for Big Bang. That would be my advice to you. Brilliant. And is there a shortcut to try and find these distributors then or do you just go Google and try and find the biggest ones? 
No, you do. You'll find that there'll be a convention on in Vegas or maybe done in the Carolinas. No, I've been to a few myself over the years, um, just to really see what the customers were doing. It was never a, you know, it was never a sales end for me. But I think that you'll find if you just look at the trade magazines for the states, look at the Chamber of Commerce, all the various things that are happening, you might you might pick one state like Florida. And yep. if you get in touch with the Chamber of Commerce, they're very, very helpful, especially when you want to import. You know, if you want to help create jobs there, they're happy to help. So my advice there would be pick one state, get in, you know, get in touch with the business community through the chamber there and just find out how you can help get get your tone of water. Yeah, Scott, I, I don't have much to add in that apart from, one, I love your ambition, but two, I would just say don't bet the ranch on America. I like Willie's advice about take a small chunk, learn, listen, see what's happening, make your mistakes, make cheap mistakes, and then you can go for it. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Here's, here's one bit of advice I'd give you as well. Try and see if you can get research and data for countries where they think water filtering is a good idea. Right, so like yeah. maybe in Australia where they don't think the quality of the water's that good or whatever. I'm giving that as an example. I'm not saying that as a case in Australia. But, I mean, we're in Australia, Kuala Lumpur, Hong Kong, Singapore, and all over the States. I would just say to you that if, if you get somewhere where it's not a hard sell, where people, I know there's a lot of people down in Florida that are not happy, you know, with the chlorine in the water and all the various things. Yes. So maybe, you know, water filtering where it's a, a hot topic might be a good route for you to go down first. Brilliant. That makes sense. Makes a lot of okay. sense. So, so Scott, please keep in touch with the show. Let us know how you're doing, and I'd be fascinated to know how you get on. Yep. And good Probably. luck to you. Thanks, Thanks for very the call. Much, good guys. Luck. Much appreciated. Good luck. Bye. Listen to Hunter and Hockey anywhere, anytime, wherever you get your podcasts. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions, helping your business with document management, print, and IT solutions. Go. Radio.